Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the first week of our new series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 through chapter 10 verse 1. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that down in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we're starting a new series in Matthew. And, uh, and really talking about, you know, how in Matthew, Jesus calls us to, to, to not be defeated, but to really say we have a gospel message, a gospel message of love, that, that we're to go on the offense and, and share and to try to reach our world, but yet realizing that it's a message that people will be offended by. Not everyone will receive. And so this morning, we're going to look at actually the beginning of that, going back to Matthew 9, 35, up through 10, 1. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. Uh, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open during our message this morning so that you can follow along uh, with the passage throughout our time of study. But let me begin by reading the passage we're gonna look at, Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the word of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of now being able to come and to study your word. Thank you for the things that you're teaching me. And Father, for the privilege that I now have to carry forth your word to teach others as well. And Father, I pray now that your spirit would speak, that it would not be my wisdom or my words, but somehow I would get lost. Father, that you would speak through me the the timeless truth of your word and help each one of us to have a sensitivity to your spirit to not only understand, but to hear and to respond to what your call may be for us today. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been around the church for any period of time, uh, you probably know my my favorite movie, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the trilogy. Those are my favorite movies of all time. I I love the movies not only because it's a very well-told story with the special effects, but because the whole Lord of the Rings story is filled with all kinds of Christian themes. Now, you, C.S. Or C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, were, were best friends. And, um, and, and the Lord of the Rings is not like Lewis's books, the Narnia books that were allegory, where it was like, you know, Narnia, you know, you have the lion is Jesus, and it's that obvious. It's not an allegory, but there are these themes that are throughout the book, and in large degree, they carry over even to the movies. So, for example, one of the most, you know, the battle of good and evil is very obvious, or the, the power of sin, that's controlling power and destructive power, or, you know, you see throughout the importance of friendship and community. But one of the themes that runs throughout the book is that there is a sense that here you have these people that are called to fight for good against evil, but they're called against seemingly impossible odds. Yet in spite of that, as they look at their quest that's seemingly hopeless, they continue on because it's what they're called to do. They, they, they continue on even though it seems dark because they realize that, that this is what I'm called to do and we just now trust on a miracle that will somehow allow us to succeed. 
It's an idea that runs throughout the story, but let me even show you from one scene from the, from the first movie, near the beginning. The scene shows this high council of these great leaders of Middle Earth, you know, the leaders of men and of elves and of wizards and dwarfs, and, and in that there is Frodo Baggins, who's a hobbit. Now, the hobbit was a race of men that were only about three feet tall. They had no special abilities, no special skills. They were so insignificant that most of the people in their world didn't even know they existed. And here they've come together and you have this insignificant hobbit in the midst of this, you know, this meeting of all these great people and they're trying to decide how the great ring of power will be destroyed. And, and the only way to destroy it is they said you need to bring it down into the midst of the enemy territory and cast it into the, you know, the, the volcanic fires of the mountain where it was made. And so that's, that's the setting of the scene. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. And I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf! Here's what you see in that scene. I mean, they're talking about this impossible task and, and that one guy is saying, you know, even with 10,000 people, I wouldn't consider doing this. And, and everybody's arguing because no one wants to take it up. Everyone knows it's impossible. And in the middle of that, you have this little insignificant hobbit who steps up and says, I will do it. I will take the ring. But then he says, but I'm so unqualified. I don't even know the way. I don't even know how to get there. Now, now do you ever look at the problems in our world you know, we're looking at this and we're seeing the decline of our culture spiritually and morally and, and, and we get, we're so much left the sense of God's truth that we can't even agree on what truth is. Do you ever get discouraged? And we live in a world where moral depravity is 
was celebrated. And if someone steps out and actually speaks truth on biblical truth on a moral issue, you could get fired for your job. And you look at it happening, and you, you know, it's discouraging. Sometimes we could say, you know, it's too big. You know, the problems have gone too far. It's beyond hope. And while we might feel, you know, discouraged, we said, well, maybe the church, but what can I do? God, what have you called me to do? You know, it's more than we could ever possibly think. We, we, we look at it and we say, I feel like I'm the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's facing these impossible odds without hope. I'm just this little three-foot nothing that nobody even knows exists. But the good news is, we are, while we're called to do it, we know the end of the story. Yes, the story will at times include a lot of parts that are dark and discouraging, and it seems like things are hopeless, but we know that the gospel is victorious. We know that God's word wins out the truth. And what we're gonna see is in this passage, not only this morning, but in these coming weeks, the Bible's realistic. It says that there are gonna be times that it's overwhelming and, and discouraging and that we face opposition. But in the midst of even in the darkness of the world, God says, I want you to go on the offensive. I want you to, to take the message of hope, the gospel of truth, into the world. And yes, the Bible, Jesus is realistic about the fact that we're gonna face opposition. We're gonna face at times rejection. But even in the midst of that, we know that God's word at the end wins. The power of the gospel is ultimately victorious. And so if we understand that, it's worth the effort to take up God's call because we know that in the end there's victory. Now this morning we're starting a new stu study in, in the Gospel of uh, Matthew and we're starting really in chapter nine, you know, chapter 10, and, but, but the Gospel isn't just this collection of stories that are thrown together, it's, it's a collection that tells spiritual truth through, select, through the selective, organized teaching of these truths of, God's, of, of Jesus' life and ministry. But they're organized in such a way that one builds on the other, that's making a point. So as we jump into the middle of the story, I think I need to kind of take a few minutes to step back and look at the context of, of what Jesus is teaching of his ministry and, and him talking about the kingdom. We saw in, in verse 35 of, uh, that he's, he talks about that he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And when it talks about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, literally the gospel is good news. If we literally translate it, it's good news. It's good news that everyone needed to hear. And then we see it in the context of verses eight, nine, or chapters eight, nine, which it's not just him preaching, but him doing these miracles. So at the beginning of chapter eight, he heals somebody with leprosy, someone who would have been an outcast in his culture. Then he heals the servant of a centurion. Some, the centurion was a Gentile, someone who was seen as unreligious and unworthy. Jesus shows his power by calming the storm that was gonna sink the boat. He raises a girl from the dead. He heals a paralyzed man. And we read of all these miracles, and it's all summed up then in verse 35 of chapter nine. And it says, as Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, again, literally translated, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, we need to understand what the good news of the kingdom is because we're going to see that it's not only the message of Jesus' teaching, but it's also then what he challenges us to bring. So if we go a few verses later in chapter uh, 10, verse seven, he now speaks to his followers and he says, and proclaim as you go, saying, Take, uh, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. We're proclaiming this good news, the kingdom of God. But what is this kingdom and how is it related to what he's talking about, these miracles and these healings in chapters eight and nine? 
And here's what we need to see is when we look at the Bible and it tells us these stories of Jesus' healings and his miracles, it's not just him dealing with physical problems. There are times that you, know, you see at the Pillow of Siloam, he goes and there's all these people that are waiting for the waters and all need healing and he just goes to one. Or we see other times that we see you know, these, these miracles and, and it's not just him showing off his power so that it's like, let me prove how powerful I am. Because if he were to do that, there were more dramatic ways he could have done it. He could have called fire from the sky. He could have said, hey, let me show you. I'm gonna fly over the Sea of Galilee. Watch this, you know. And that would have been really amazing and everybody would have come and seen it. But he didn't do that. Because the point of his miracles wasn't just to show his power. It was to teach us something about the purpose, the redemptive purpose of his power. Now here's what we think. For most of us, when we think about Jesus' miracles, we think that it's a suspension of the natural order. But that's not really what miracles are about. What you need to understand is that when you look at the whole of the Bible's teaching, God didn't originally make the world that we're in it today, the way it is today. See, God didn't create a world that had starvation and, and hunger. It didn't, it, there wasn't blindness or leprosy or poverty or disease or death. None of those things existed. That's all the result of sin. And what the miracles show is that God isn't happy with the brokenness in the world either that he's come to set things straight. And what that means is, let me put this up here, the miracles aren't primarily suspension of the natural order, but they're the restoration of the natural order. They're in a sense pointing us this picture of how God has come to put the world back the way it was created to be, with no poverty or disease or hunger or death. Not only that, but it's pointing to the fact that there's ultimately an initiation of a kingdom and there will be a new kingdom one day and in that new kingdom, it will be totally put back in order. And so in that new kingdom, there will not be disease, there will not be hunger, there will not be death, there will not be any of those things. But in here now, we come into that kingdom by recognizing that Jesus is the rightful king and submitting ourselves to his rule in our life, his leadership in our life. And when we do that, he begins the process of putting things back in order. And what happened is when we sinned, ultimately we broke our relationship with God. And because our relationship with God was broken, all the other things started to break as well. Not only sickness and disease, but, but brokenness in, in relationships, brokenness in, in our culture, bro moral brokenness. And what we need to realize is that when we fix our relationship with God, he begins the process of healing things so he can restore relationships that are broken. He can free us from things that can control us. He can heal us from despair or depression. The things that, he can give us hope in the midst of a hopeless world. Now in that, we need to realize that there's a, when we talk about the kingdom, there's a sense that the kingdom has come. It's initiated, but it's not fully realized. And so we live in a sense that we say, okay, we surrender to his kingdom. But now what we do is we get the first fruits. You know, we get, we get the beginning of his work in our lives. And, and so the fact is, is that one day we're going to get the ultimate kingdom where everything is put in order. And the God, all, the, all the miracles, all of that are just these foretastes of saying, this is what God is doing. God is a healing God, not only physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, putting things back in order because once we get right with God, everything else starts to fall back in line as well. Now, in the midst of that, we can look at it and say, but the world is so broken. And we see not only how the broken world is, but how far we continue to sprint away from God. And it's natural to get depressed. It's natural to get discouraged. 
And from, if we always see as our own perspective and the here and now, I agree with you, I'm, I'm gonna get depressed and discouraged. But what we need is we need God's perspective on the brokenness that we see around us. And that's what we have here at the end of Luke chapter nine, is we have Jesus saying, okay, now we're in the midst of this and, and let me give you my perspective. Let's go back, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And what you see is that again, he brings this message of hope into the brokenness, message of healing. He comes to bring the good news of the kingdom. This good news that says, okay, if you get your relationship with God right, if we restore what was broken there, it's gonna begin to bring healing and restoration to everything else that is broken as well. But then we're told that he looks in verse 36 out at the crowds and he sees the brokenness that was out in the world. And look at his response, I'm sorry, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. He saw them as harassed and helpless. They, they were desperate. He saw their confusion. They were sheep without a shepherd. Now here's something that we have to remember is that that was God's perspective. That was Jesus' perspective. Do you think everybody out there thought that they were helpless and lost and sheep without a shepherd, that they felt that about themselves? No, I think that a lot of them probably didn't realize that they were in need. And in the same way, what we need to realize is as we interact with people, the lost people, the unsaved people that we interact with are lost and in need. Not that all of them know it. Not that everyone will admit it. No, Jesus, they had compassion because they were harassed and helpless. No, they think they're wise, but they don't really understand. They're sheep without a shepherd. So what we need to realize in our time as well, most people that are spiritually lost that don't have a relationship with Christ don't necessarily realize that they're lost. In fact, even in our own example, in our own testimony, how many of us would come and say, well, man, I was lost, but I didn't really realize it until I was found. I didn't realize how broken my life was until I came to Christ and then I realized how much he repaired. Let me try to illustrate this. Let's, let's say that you, there's a child and that was, maybe this child was, was orphaned as just a preschool and has grown up on the streets of a city. And this unfortunately happens in many parts of the world. A, a child, they just, all they've ever known is, is life on the streets. That's all that child's ever known. Now, they don't know what it means to be a part of a family. They don't know what it means to be loved. And if someone came up to them and said, I want to adopt you and make you part of our family and so that I become your parents, it's possible that that child may see that as a threat. Because that child may look at that and say, well, wait a second, if I do that, I've got to leave where I've been living and I've got to live under your authority and I've got to, and they may look at that and say, this, this is threatening all what I know. It threatens what I think I need to make me happy. And it's possible they may run away from it because it's not only until they've been, been adopted and experienced love until they've experienced all the benefits of that adoption could they really understand how lost and desperate they really were. And the same thing is true for us spiritually. Now we might say, well, okay, but I try to tell people and, and they don't want to hear and, and so what do I do if they don't want to hear and, and they just reject the message and they tell me, I, you know, don't tell me. Well, let me use another illustration. What if you're coming home late one night as you walk home, you see your neighbor's house and you notice there's a fire going on in the kitchen. And you know that you see the cars there, you know your neighbors are there, their whole family's there, they're probably upstairs sleeping, and, and you see this fire, what do you do? Well, would you go to the door and kind of knock on the door and, 
you know, a couple times. Well, they didn't answer, so I might as well go ahead. They're probably sleeping. So, but no, no, you gotta wake them up. No, if I really pound on the door, they might, they might be offended that I wake them up from their sleep. They might not like that. No, no, you need to knock on the door. You need to pound open the door if you need to. Well, no, if I go in the door, their house might be a mess and they might be embarrassed by what I see and, and they, might, they might be really upset that I did damage to their door. No, the thing is that if you understand there's a fire and there's people, fire can kill that perspective is to say, I'm gonna pound on the door until you hear. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna make whatever noise necessary. I'm gonna pound, knock, knock open the door because I realize it's a matter of saving people's lives. My friends, when we talk about spiritually lost, that's what we're talking about. That if people die apart from faith in Christ, that there's a, they're spiritually lost. There's an eternity of separation from God. And we're sitting there and God said, okay, now realize there's a fire, pound on the door. They may not always like it. They may not like being woken up, but we realize I'm going to risk that rejection because it's that important. If I understand God's perspective of people and their need, you see, then I'm gonna understand God's, God's passion towards reaching the lost. Even in that, somebody could say, yeah, I can see that, but you know, 20 or 30 years ago, people were more open, and in our culture, people have become so negative and so hostile to the gospel, and people are just gonna be open, so why even try to share? Well, here, let's go again to the perspective of Matthew 9. Again, what we're seeing is that we need to see God's perspective on the world's brokenness, and another aspect of that is that God isn't surprised or depressed or discouraged by what's happening in our culture. We may be. God isn't. And, and what we see here is that Jesus teaches us that the harvest is plentiful. And if we understand what he's saying, that's going to give us great reason for hope and optimism. In verse 36, he tells us about the need. He's realistic. He says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But then look what he says in verse 37. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Now, this is an amazing statement when you think about it. The harvest is plentiful, meaning the people that are open spiritual, the spiritual harvest of people coming to faith in Christ is plentiful. And then when he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, I want you to realize that in the context of what he's saying here, because again, I mean, it's, it's amazing, the context and the meaning of what he's saying. What he's saying is that if you understand this dynamic spiritually, the harvest is plentiful. He's saying there are, are people out there that are looking to, that are open to Christ. And the, the response, the, the, you know, the, the big limiting factor in a sense isn't, you know, how many, we, we think, well, the limiting factor is that people are closed, the culture is closed, people aren't gonna hear the gospel. And the limiting factor isn't the openness of the world. It isn't the power of the gospel. The limiting factor, and the harvest is plentiful. That's not the limit. The limiting factor is the laborers are few. The limiting factor is there aren't enough people that are out there that are sharing the gospel. If we look at it and say, what is limiting the church's growth and impact, it's not because people are closed or uninterested. No, the harvest is plentiful. What's limiting us is that there are more people spiritually open that are willing to go out, and, and Christ followers that are willing to go out and share the gospel message. It isn't the closed spiritual condition of the culture. The limiting factor is the faithfulness of the church. Now, do you believe that to be true? Do you think that that's still true today, for us today, that the harvest is plentiful? See, and, and we've got to ask, do we really believe that? 
It's a huge question. Now, I think for many of us, we would say, well, yeah, theologically, well, because the Bible says it, so therefore I believe it. Well, practically, do you believe it? Because if I really believe it, not only theologically, but in practice, it's gonna change the way that I act. If I look at it and say, well, we're a post-Christian nation, people are really closed, the media today, well, then I'm not gonna go out and I'm not gonna be courageous, I'm not gonna share, I'm gonna be pessimistic. But if I really believe Jesus' words here, the harvest is plentiful, that's still true, then I'm going to respond to the second part and say the labors are few. Therefore, what I wanna do is God's call me to be a part of the harvest. God's calling me to be a part of what he wants to do. I wanna be part of these testimonies of what, you know, these baptisms, and, and I want to, I'm praying that God would bring people in my sphere of influence to saving faith, that I be, get to be a part of that. But if I don't believe Jesus' words, if I think, well, yeah, that's in the past, and, you know, but the past, you know, the, the harvest, that was in the past. So the spiritual ground is bare now, and because it's bare, why should I go out and even try? But the ground isn't barren. That's what Jesus is telling them and us. No, the harvest is plentiful. There's great opportunity. There are people whom God is working. There are people that seem to be spiritually closed. God's doing something in their life, and he's saying, no, now they just need to hear the gospel. And he wants it to resonate in our hearts to say, I want to be a part of that. And, and part of that is just Part of what we talked about a couple weeks ago, building relationships with unbelieving friends, spending time with them, praying for them, asking how can I pray for you, looking for those opportunities to invite them to church, to an event to church. But still we want to respond, but what if they don't respond? You know, what, you know we want to object, you know, if they don't respond. Well, here's what we need to realize is that he's using an image that's agricultural in nature. And, and the idea is that, you know, it's not that everybody's going to respond right away. Oftentimes when we think of sharing our faith, we think of this one-time event. I'm going to tell them about Christ. I'm going to, do you want to believe? And they're going to believe. Well, they weren't open. They were closed. I'm, you know, I'm discouraged. And here's what we need to realize. When we think of agriculture, the harvest isn't a one-time event. It's the last event of a long process for which you need a lot of patience. Um, now, the problem is we don't do agriculture, so we don't, most of us don't have experience with this. But even if we've never really done, worked on a farm, we kind of get it. Let me illustrate it this way. Kim, I'm raised by an Italian mom. I'm half Italian. So as a result, I like good food. And I appreciate, you know, having the right um, ingredients to make good food. So I was thinking about that. You know, we need some, we need fresh basil. I need some fresh, ba oh man, I love pesto with fresh basil, it's wonderful. So I decided I was gonna grow some basil. So I went out yesterday and I got some potting soil and I got, you know, some basil seeds and I, I you know, read, okay, here's the depth and pack this the, the dirt the right way and put in the basil seeds and put the dirt on top and I've watered it. And, and, and here I've got my basil plant and I got up this morning and I wanna tell you, I am, I am frustrated. Man, it's been like 24 hours, and I still don't have any basil. I mean, I was hoping to fix something today. I don't even have a sprout here. What a waste of time. Why does anybody ever try to grow anything? Because I've done everything right, and nothing's growing. Man, I'm so frustrated. I just want to give up. And you're like, man, Mike, you're kind of being silly here. You know, it's less than 24 hours. It takes time. I mean, even on a package, it says it like takes 10 days to get a sprout. It takes two to three months to actually grow basil that you can use. Be patient, dude. It's, gonna, it's not, not going to happen immediately. My friends, the same thing is true. That's why God uses imagery, agricultural imagery, about sharing our faith and leading people to faith. 
He says it's like growing plants. It's, you know, it takes time, multiple steps, and sometimes we're out there, and for some people, we're just preparing the field. It's hard, and we just need to break it up a little bit, and then we need to plant the seed and water it and tend the crop and chase the animals away, and, and you know, we need to labor, and it's, it, now a lot of times you're there, and you go out, and you don't see anything going on. Day by day, it seems like nothing has changed, but then one day it's harvest time, and suddenly there's life, there's fruit. And we need to realize that as we go out into the field, he calls us to go out in the field, and we're gonna act interact with people. And some of those people, we're just trying to break up the ground. And some of them, we're planting the seed, and some of them, there's a seed that's planted, and we're watering, and, and some of them, we're weeding. And, and, but if we continue to do that, the fact of the matter is we're gonna run across some of those people where, man, it's harvest time. Or maybe we've been part way back here, but, but now it's harvest time, and we get to celebrate that we were a part of it. There might be times that there's no growth at all. There might be times that it looks like barren dirt. You know, we're sitting there saying, man, it's just, you know, but here's what I realize. I, there's barren dirt, but there's something going on underneath the dirt. There's, there's a miracle, the seed coming to life, and that may be happening with the people that we're interacting with. Or there may be times we go out and, and all we see is a bunch of thorns and thistles, and, and there's a little bit of plant there, but man, it's prickery. And, and we're witnessing to people, and we're saying, oh, I'm getting his pricks, I'm getting, I'm getting rejection. And here's where I want to encourage you. Even when people respond negatively to the gospel, that isn't necessarily a rejection. That may be a sign that God is working and that there's a sensitivity of their heart that God is now digging into and they're reacting because they don't want you to touch that sensitive part where God's beginning to prick. No, we're called to go out and say that Jesus, remember Jesus' words, the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. The limiting factor isn't how many people, the power of the gospel or even our ability to share it it's, it's our willingness to be faithful and then believe for God to do the miraculous. The fact is, the more seed we spread, the more harvest we'll be a part of. The more people in our lives, will put, in our sphere of influence, will put their faith in Christ. But then we still, we feel like we don't have what it takes. Well, then look what it says. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the field. We're called to pray for his provision, for his power. And I think it's even there, it's that statement of prayer. I, I think a couple of weeks ago, we, we did this challenge, and I, so many of you said, okay, you know, I, I love, if you go in the prayer room, you see the cross there, and you see so many of you say, here are the people I'm praying for, I wanna pray for them regularly. Do that, think about who are people in your sphere of influence you could pray. And pray for them, pray for them regularly. And say, okay, God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. If you pray that, I'm looking forward to some of you saying, man, this happened, I just prayed for an opportunity, and God brought this person and started asking me. Those things will happen. And pray and be patient for God. You know, we're excited this evening, we're gonna have even somebody light the candle this evening who has been praying for, you know, people that, that we're gonna be baptized today for well over a decade. I've been praying with her for well over a decade. And we're celebrating in God's time, he works. And we're excited about that. But even if you still feel overwhelmed, what does it say in verse 10, or beginning chapter 10? He called his disciples and he gave them authority, that he gives us his authority. He gives us the ability to do what we cannot do. And our job is just to go and get the seed, plant it, plant it, and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna get the dirt, I'm gonna plant the seed, and then trust that he's going to do the miracle that he can do. He, only God can cause a seed to sprout. I can't do that. But that's the kind of miracle that God does on a regular basis. So, What's this mean for us? There's a personal sense of this call that God is giving us. 
you know, because you look at it, he's teaching in general. In fact, if you look at what he says at verse 38 of chapter nine, therefore pray earnestly to the word of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now here's what we need to realize. We go to chapter 10, new thought, new idea. Matthew didn't put chapter breaks in there. He didn't put, it just as a continuation of the thought. So, so keep this as a continuation of the thought. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? He is. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers. The very next word, and he called them as 12 disciples and gave them authority and sent them out. He said, pray that God would send laborers. Okay, pray, well, it starts with you. <laughs> I think that's what he's still saying to us today. He's saying, okay, pray, but it starts with you. Now, Pumpy said, well, no, this was the 12 disciples. This was just unique to them. He's not sending me out. Well, then let's go to the end of Matthew. Matthew 28, a passage we looked at a couple, of year, a couple of weeks ago. In the end of Matthew, Jesus said, just to make sure that you get this, I'm gonna now say not just to the 12, but all, as I'm about to go into heaven, this is my last challenge to all of you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Just like in Matthew 10, he starts by saying, I'm giving you authority. Now go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So who does this apply to? With you always to the end of the age. And so until he comes back, this applies to us. The challenge, the promises, God has called us to be his ambassador that continues his ministry. Now here's what I think Jesus saw happening, even for his disciples then. He knew that they're watching him, they're hearing him teach, they're seeing him do his healing, and, and they realize, okay, you know, you know, Jesus, that's great, but he says, okay, I'm about to be taken away. And he says, okay, now I'm going to challenge you to continue the ministry that I have been doing. And that was terrifying to those men. I mean, these are, these are guys that are untrained, they're, you know, fishermen, they're, they're not scholars, they aren't teachers. They're, they're just... The disciples, the followers, and they're the hobbits. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm entrusting this to you. And in the same way, we can feel like, man, in this world, are you kidding? You're entrusting this gospel? But he does to each one of us, and he says, okay, this is what I'm entrusting. Why? Because Jesus himself was sent. Jesus said in John 20, says, as a father sent me, I have been sent with this message, now I'm going, and as I'm going, now I'm sending you. Now you continue to do the things that I've been doing. You continue my ministry. We are called to bring his hope and his healing to others. It is good news of the gospel. Not that, that everybody knows they need it. Not everybody, but they do. And we are called to bring that hope and that healing. And he, we're called, and we're not only given, we're given the authority to do that ministry. And if you feel unqualified, again, remember, who were these great heroes of the faith that we now think of? Matthew was a tax collector. He would have been considered the moral equivalent of a drug pusher in that day. You have fishermen, you have uneducated, they weren't rabbis, they weren't trained professionals. They were normal people who trusted God and let him use them. And said, God, I'm just gonna bring my, I'm gonna bring my little bit and you do the miracle. Because we realize that ultimately, like he did with them, he does with us, he gives us his authority to do that ministry. Look what it says in chapter 10, verse one. It says, they called his, disciples, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, we read that, we think right away, well, that doesn't really apply to us now. You know, we don't think of ourselves as being called to heal diseases or cast out demons. And, and um, I know that God's word is timeless, but, but this challenge and the promise, how many of us really think that this applies to us. Well, first of all, what does he say? It gives him authority. 
And again, what is the great commission we just read a moment ago? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now I give you that authority. Now go to the nations. But here, what does it mean that he says authority over unclean spirits to cast them out? Well, let me get you to think about that. Do we really have power over unclean spirits? What's that mean? So we often think of this in simplistic terms. You know, we think physical, spiritual. So when we think of casting out demons, we think of Jesus and casting out demons and exorcisms, and, and we think, you know, I don't really run across that many demon-possessed people, and even if I did, I don't think I'm called to exorcism. But let me ask you, are there demonic forces, spiritual powers at work in our world today? Yeah, we all know that, right? How do they manifest themselves? We interact with dark spiritual powers all the time. Seldom is it demons that possess people that are talking in different voices. If you go back to Ephesians 6, we looked at a couple months ago, what does it say? No, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and dark forces of evil, you know, these spiritual powers in heaven. And what it's saying is when we look at the physical and moral and racial and social problems around us, we need to realize that these aren't just flesh and blood. They aren't just physical. They aren't just, you know, the wrong political party or the wrong person. No, all of that, there's spiritual powers that are involved. And when we deal with brokenness, even in our own lives, it's not just the physical. There's spiritual problems that are involved. And we need to realize that Jesus says, now I give you the authority to cast these things out. Basically, what it's saying is, I can be overwhelmed by their spiritual powers. I can't do it. But we have authority. Meaning that he, when he says he gives us authority over these unclean spirits, that we have the ability to bring the gospel message in. And when we bring the gospel message in and people understand the gospel and say, okay, I'm gonna make Jesus Lord of my life, it takes these things that have control over our lives and Jesus gives us victory. So you can have a couple that is struggling and, and their past anger and their past mistakes are driving them apart and then God comes in and says, okay, let me teach you you're forgiven and, and let me teach you how to love one another. Let me teach you how to forgive like you didn't understand before. And suddenly the power of the enemy can be broken in a marriage. Where you have people that are addicted to various things of one kind or another and, and Satan is there and he's playing on, on, on brokenness in the past and it works with yeah, the biological tendency towards addiction, but it's ultimately spiritual as well. And you have people that say, I can never have victory over this. And God says, okay, here, let me take you the gospel. Let me tell you the forgiveness of Christ. Claim the forgiveness of Christ. Let God go deep into your soul and bring healing to all these areas of brokenness. And as he brings all these areas of brokenness, let's break that spiritual power. And what you're gonna find is, as we have numerous people in our congregation to say, I was addicted, I'm no longer. I now have freedom because that's the power of God has. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of our message. We have hope. We have people that are depressed and discouraged and, 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 and it's, yeah, there is a physical element, yes, but there's a spiritual element. And God gives us the power through his gospel to find victory. And first of all, it means applying it to our own lives, applying that gospel in our own lives and then sharing with other people and saying there is hope in the midst of a dark world. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. But then how do we do that? Because still I can look at the, the whole and say, man, here's this world and there's all this stuff out there and the media and politics and, but what is God's message, method? And let's go back to the Great Commission. It doesn't say, all authority is given unto me, now go change the world. Go change politics. That says, all authority is given unto heaven and earth is given to me, now go make disciples. His method has always been one person at a time. 
He changes the world one person at a time. You see, if each one of us said, okay, God, use me to reach just a few people and I'm reaching one person, and suddenly if the whole church is doing that, and suddenly if the church nationally is doing that, we're changing one person at a time, and the cumulative effect of that is suddenly you see the culture changing. That has always been God's plan. That's where you had 120 people in the early church, and next thing you know, a couple decades later, they're saying, these guys are turning the world upside down. One person at a time, making disciples, saying, God, use me to reach one person. God, use me to reach just the few people around me. There's a story of a man walking down a deserted uh, Mexican beach at sunset. And as he walked along, he saw another man in the distance. And, and he saw this guy kind of bending down and picking something up and throwing it in the ocean. And he wasn't sure what it was. He got closer. He noticed that he was picking up these starfish that had been washed up on the beach and one at a time throwing them back in the water. And he was puzzled. He approached the man. And he said, you know, I, you know, I was just wondering what you're doing. He says, well, I'm throwing these starfish back in the ocean. You know, it's low tide right now and all these starfish have been washed up on high tide and, and they're here and if they, if they don't get back in the ocean, they're gonna die from lack of oxygen. And, and the guy said, well, I understand that, but, you know, but there are thousands of starfish on this beach and this is one of many beaches on this coastline and, and, and what difference could you really make when you look at like just the you know, thousands, tens of thousands of starfish all around us? And the man was quiet for a minute and he bent down and he picked up a starfish and he threw it in the ocean and said, I made a difference to that one, didn't I? See, that's what God has called us to do. To say, yeah, not to be discouraged by all that is happening, by, you know, by the enemy, by the, you know, the Lord of the Rings, it's impossible and, and we're just wrote it. But God calls us to make a difference one person at a time, one family at a time. God, speak to me, work in me. God, help me to share with other people and help me to invest one person at a time and one person, one family at a time. We have the chance of not making a difference to that one, but over time, making a difference in our city and our culture as God does what only he can do. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.